0: Um, who's going to come up? Oh, you're both going to do it. Okay, excellent. We're going to have the Dodson family come up and read scripture for us today. <laughs> Let's all stand uh, together and uh, we're going to read the whole of John chapter 20. John chapter 20, the whole chapter. And uh, I want to encourage you although it will be up on the screen uh, to follow along in your Bibles. All right, John chapter 20.
2: On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors, lock, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed him his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my fingers into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Now, Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name.
0: Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And uh, I just want to take a moment to begin here with a word of prayer. So if you would join me as we pray. Lord, we, we come to this incredible passage of scripture this morning, and uh, Lord, we are asking for your help. We can come to this in our own human strength, and we might just seem to see what, um, what we want to see, but Lord, we want to see what you desire for us to see. We want your word to become alive, and Lord, that your Holy Spirit would make it uh, real to us and understandable to us. So Lord, we ask, Lord, for understanding, for wisdom, for clarity, Lord, for empowerment through your word. And I ask that as your messenger, you would just allow me to reflect your truth so that your people would be firm in the faith, and would be growing, Lord, in the things that you are teaching them through our time together this morning. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Now, the context of the resurrection is where we find the clue to understanding the purpose of John's gospel. Let me remind you again of chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now, you've heard me say it over and over and over again as we've gone through John's gospel but it is important for us to take time to remind ourselves of what it says. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these, the ones I'm giving you here, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so he presents evidence that leads us, the readers, to believe and it is a belief that results in life in Christ's name. So, in essence, the whole of the gospel is about John presenting evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. So, we can say this every story, every miracle, every discussion, every metaphor, every conflict, every lesson, all of it has been the lens of discovery of the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. He is the bread of life, the light of the world, the door of the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life, the true vine. He has changed water into wine. He's healed the official son. He has healed the invalid at the pool of Bethsaida. He's fed over 5,000 near the Sea of Galilee. He's walked on the water of the Sea of Galilee. He healed the man that was born blind in Jerusalem. He raised dead Lazarus from the grave in Bethany. Now he's been confronted by the religious leadership and they sent out soldiers to arrest him and ultimately they wanted to put him to death. He was betrayed. He was found innocent, but he was beaten and whipped by soldiers. He is sentenced to be crucified. He is mocked crucified, and buried in a sealed tomb. And all of this has been purposeful and abundant evidence for all of us reading this gospel, all of us sitting under the preaching and teaching of this gospel, so that we would believe. And in believing, we would have life in his name. Now, for today, there is another key verse It's another window in which we understand this immediate context. So John is still accomplishing what he's doing in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. But now, as we go to the context of chapter 20, there is another key verse, and it's found in verse 29. This is what Jesus says to Thomas. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There's something in this passage about seeing Jesus for who he really is that John wants us to comprehend. It is a passage about the resurrection, and we don't want to miss the resurrection. This is all about the resurrection, but this is what the followers of Christ are able to see on that day of resurrection. And so this idea of seeing, then, is what results in people being blessed, in particular, the ones who are blessed are the ones who have not seen physically, actually been there, but still believed. And friends, it is a statement like that that transcends time and draws us into this passage. We have not had the privilege of seeing Jesus physically. We haven't looked at his hands. We haven't grabbed his ankles like Mary does. We only have the eyewitness accounts. But through their eyewitness accounts, through their testimony, we can come to the place where we can have genuine belief in a solid, sure foundation. What John is revealing for us is not shaky ground. It is a solid foundation that is layered and layered and layered and layered again with eyewitness evidence to show and to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It's a pretty powerful message when you think about the whole book of John, over and over and over again. And here in John chapter 20, it comes to this focal point. So the question for all of us this morning is this, what do you see as you read the Gospel of John? And maybe more specifically this morning, what do you see as you read the account of the resurrection? So the key here is this, when the evidence is placed before you, what do you see? Do you see? And if you do see something, what is it that you see? And then what will you do with what you see? Now I'm I'm pulling all of this out of this passage. Let me explain myself here because there are four words that we must pay some attention to if we're going to comprehend what's going on in this chapter. The English language cannot do justice to the Greek text that John uh, and his gospel is written in. And so this is where a little word study, a little Bible study, a little help comes a long way. And I'm not trying to be fancy and technical. I'm just trying to help us understand that Koine Greek, which is the language that this is written in, is far more nuanced than our English language. And so John here actually uses four different words that we translate or saw in this passage. So there's a lot of seeing going on, and it appears to be just the same word, see, saw, all that kind of stuff through this passage, but there are actually four different Greek words, and so it helps us to understand what those words mean. So let's just take a moment here to consider what those words mean. The first one is the word blepo, okay? Good name for your child if you're thinking of one, all right, blepo, it means a general look, a general look, okay? It has the idea of general observation as you look around. It's a casual look. We are all this morning blepoing, so to speak, okay? That's a conglomeration of English and Greek there, just so you know, okay? We're all looking, but we're not necessarily paying great attention. We see things. You probably went by and saw that there was coffee or there were donuts or that someone was here, and you might ask the question, hey, was that person there? Oh, yeah, I think they were there. Let me think. You know, you're you're just observing. You're just watching. It's casual. Now, this past week, a couple of things happened. My wife lost her keys, um, and I lost my wallet. All right, we lost some things, and it's like, you know, as I'm kind of, you know, chuckling about my wife losing her keys and all that went into that, I lose my wallet. And so I'm asking my family, have you seen my wallet? And what I'm asking is, have you just in the course of your day noticed it somewhere? Was it on the table? Was it on the desk? Was, you know, where, have you, just, have you noticed it? The idea there is, in a casual way, have you seen my wallet? Bluff in general, Okay. The next word is uh, theoro, and um, it means a careful look, okay? might say it's an investigative look. It's a closer look. It's the idea behind that word. So it would be kind of like as I've lost my wallet, me asking my children, hey, did you you look up my dresser? Did you look on my nightstand? So now I'm going around the house looking for my wallet. I'm looking at... All those places, I think it might be, but I'm I'm not casually looking. I'm looking more intently, all right. And you know what it's like. You can't find it, so you go back to the same place that you know it's not, but you want to look again, just to see if you know if it appears there, you know. But you're taking this closer look, all right. Maybe it's in the diary. maybe um, it's on my wife's desk, or maybe it is, you know, maybe it's on the floor under the bed somehow, all right. That's the idea of this look. Then there's this next word, Iden, beginning with E. A perceiving or understanding look. So this is taking it a little further. We're going from this general look to a more specific intent look. Now, this is a look where there is perception and there's understanding taking place. Comprehending what's going on. Okay? It makes sense. So it's not just the visual looking. It's also the the, the cognitive comprehending that is going together with the visual looking. So in the context of my wallet, I remembered that my wallet was in the back pocket of my jeans and that my wife lovingly had put the clothes to wash. So I'm thinking, hmm, maybe, just maybe, they're down in the dirty clothes that are getting ready to wash. Well, I go downstairs and I notice the washing machine is not running, but I notice the dryer is running, and I'm and what I see in the dryer are credit cards and dollar bills, and my Starbucks gold card is in there. I'm like, no, you know, what's going on here? Now I understand what money laundering is all about, okay? <laughs> but but it'll take you a while, okay? All right. But the idea here is now as I'm standing there looking, I am perceiving, I am fully understanding what took place. It's not just that I see credit cards and money. I'm understanding the whole picture of what took place. I left my wallet in my jeans. My jeans went into the dirty clothes. The dirty clothes went into the washer. And now they're in the dryer making lovely the whole you know, conglomeration of clothes there. Just money pouring out of everywhere. Okay? all right. That's the idea this, that there of Eden, Okay, um, a perceiving, understanding look. Now, the next one actually is the same root of uh, of Ida in there, but it's oida, to look. To know with certainty. So this is basically saying this. Having having looked at the evidence, I am convinced that I know what is going on with an... uh, or or what actually took place. Let's put it this way. As it relates to my wallet, I know for certain that it isn't hiding under my dresser. I know for certain that it isn't isn't something the cat um, stole Um, that I didn't leave it in the car or Bigfoot did not hide it from me. I know with a certainty that I forgot to take my wallet out of my jeans and that's how it got here, okay? So there's this process going on. I I want us to understand this progression here with these words. There's a general look. There's a more intent look. look. There's a a look of, of fuller perception and understanding and then a similar word. This word has the idea then of to know with a certainty. And so we move then in this progression from one to another. So I want you to keep that in mind, and as we go through here on the screen, as we come to a a word saw, I'm gonna use the capital letter of these things to help you know what the word is in Greek. Okay, if you want, that's gonna be a help to you, for you also to see progression, because what is John doing? John is walking us through this progression of sight and understanding so that we can get to the place where what? We believe! And it's not just a soft, fuzzy belief, It is a convinced, um, determined belief that something is true, okay? Now, there are four witnesses that we're going to look at today. You have them there in your handout. Apprehensive John and Peter, Weeping Mary, uh, the intimidated disciples, and then Doubting Thomas. And So we're going to look at those four witnesses, and if time permits, we're going to look at five promises out of this passage too, okay? So let's think about this these four resurrection witnesses. These are the ones that are presenting John's argument that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, as well as presenting and proving this point that some believe and have seen and believed and some do not see and also believe and that they are blessed. Now let's set the stage here, beginning at verse 1. Here is Mary approaching the tomb very early in the morning and what does she see? that the stone that covered the entrance to the tomb had been taken away or rolled away. Let's read verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw, that's a B, all right, bleppo, that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she observed this. In shock, she rushes to where the, the, where the disciples are, in particular Peter and John, And she informs them of this horrible news. In her mind, someone has taken Jesus' body away. It could be robbers. It could be people that were trying to just one more time desecrate Jesus' body out of rebellion, out of hatred. And and so she's concerned about that. In verse 2, she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple to to the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, friends, this would be the ultimate insult. Let I me mean, just think about this. To see her master arrested, beaten, mocked, crucified, and now having his body uh, and tomb looted by robbers or even desecrated by those who still hate him, that would be an awful, might want to say, seal or stamp of hatred and hostility and insult to Jesus. So it's no wonder she runs back to the disciples not knowing what's going on, but filling in the gaps as best she could. Now notice all the running in the garden, okay? Just kind of tells us of the intensity of what's going on here. I mean, if you hear some news like this, you don't say, well, how about we, you guys want to go for a walk to the garden? Sure, let's go, you know. boom, No, they're running, they're running fast to get to the disciples. She's running, and then Peter and John are running now to get to the tomb. So I want you to notice, first of all, then um, what John saw. Here we have apprehensive John and Peter. Now both John and the other uh, John, who is the disciple whom Jesus loved, the other disciple here, and Peter, both of them were startled by the news and go running to the tomb. Now apparently. Um, John was the one on a paleo diet and not Peter because he arrives at the tomb first, okay? Notice verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Please don't read any imagery, any allegorical interpretation there of that. It's simply the events of what took place with people running in the garden. And what now does John see? John looks and he sees the linen cloths lying there. Look at verse 5. And stooping to look in, he saw, bleppo, the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. So John saw the evidence of the linen cloths, which were the burial garments that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had bound Jesus' body in. But then, verse 6, Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And what does Peter see? Well, Peter sees a little bit more, all right? He saw, this is the word thoreo, the linen cloths lying there. So he's going in. He's not just seeing generally. Now he's seeing more intently. He sees these linen wrappings, and he sees these, the, the face cloth folded up um, in a place by itself. So Peter, taking a closer look, sees more than John does initially. And the, the face cloths that are folded up, li- literally it means twirled. Okay, that's the idea. So what Peter is, is looking at is the burial cloth along with the burial turban, if you want to put it that way. Verse 8, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb, so that's John again, also went in. And now what does John see? Well, we're told here, and he saw, Iden, and believed. See the progression here? blepo, thereo, Iden. John now is not just looking intently. John is perceiving. He's understanding. He's figuring out what's going on. What is it that John sees that was different than what Peter sees so that he believes? John sees the linen cloths. He also sees the face cloth. Now, unlike the Egyptians who embalm and mummify their bodies, and unlike the Greeks and the Romans who usually cremated their bodies, the Jews wrapped their dead body uh, bodies in burial cloths, and they covered them with spices. And we saw that last time. The bodies, however, were not completely wrapped. So what I want you to notice here as we, as we, we look at the image that's taking place here is that the body had been wrapped, but in, in Jewish culture, they would not wrap from the shoulder up to the top of the head. So the face was exposed. They would wrap like that turban on top here. Okay, So... What he sees then is the linen cloths and face cloth. Um, And what he then is doing is he's not just seeing the data in front of him. He's now perceiving what that means. Now, literally, as I mentioned before, it's not that the the, the head cloths were folded in the corner. It's that they were twirled, just, just like the body had left. As we read in this passage... Jesus appears in this room that is locked where the disciples are gathering. In the same way he appears in that room, some have said it's the same way in which Jesus left those wrapping uh, cloths. They're just left there, right where the body was laying. But John here sees and he believes So he understands now the significance of the empty tomb and the empty clothes in the empty tomb. There were no robbers. There were no Jewish or Roman uh, desecrators. The only explanation was that Jesus has risen from the dead. Now John, in writing this gospel, reminds... the. That up to this point, none of the disciples really understood what was going on. Now, we read the other Gospels. We know that Jesus repeated himself over and over and over again what was going to happen. But there was this this cloud of blindness that was put on. There was a divine cloud of blindness. But notice what John says here in verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. But the believing that leads to life is now beginning in John And it is the evidence of the resurrection that snaps that belief into place. I want you to go back to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. I want to remind you of a story that we looked at where Jesus goes into the temple. He, he, He cleanses the temple. He turns over the money changers. Remember that? And this is what Jesus says in that context. Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. John chapter 2, verse 19. And then John adds some words of explanation saying this. Look at verse 22 of John chapter 2. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples what? Remember that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So, What we're looking at in John 20 with John is the moment that John was talking about. The moment where this general sight led to investigative sight that resulted in perceiving and understanding sight, which resulted in genuine belief. Now, friends, that's important for us to see. It's important for us to understand that there is a process going on with everyone in this room. Some people see. They just see generally. They come to church and they say, ah, oh, the pastor's preaching from the Bible. I see Jesus in some songs. I look around. It's kind of a general thing going on. Then there are some people that, that because of the Holy Spirit working in them, they begin to ask questions and they begin to want to learn more and they start to dig and they start to, to grapple with the things of God and with the gospel. And there comes a moment in time when that light bulb turns on and it's the Holy Spirit awakening them to the truth. And we just see this fleshed out here in this example of John in particular. Now, do you see the progression that is taking place? Do you see how John paints a picture of growing belief? Do you see how he tells the story to show us the stages of comprehension and insight to the point of genuine belief? Now, friends, this is what he desires for us to see. This is what he desires us also to believe. To see that evidence and then ultimately to believe. Now, Notice verse 10, then the disciples went back to their homes. Now, not literally their homes, but the place that they were dwelling in Jerusalem. That's the idea. And we turn our attention to Weeping Mary, the second witness of the resurrection. Mary had already seen Bleppo, the tomb, where the stone rolled away, um, which caused her to run and tell Peter and John what was going on. But now, sometime after John and Peter have left that tomb, Mary is outside, and she's weeping at that tomb. And notice, it says in verse 11, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Now, the word for weeping here is the word that is used to describe this this sobbing and this wailing that often took place with professionals coming. If you remember the story of Lazarus. There are people out there outside the tomb and they just wail and they wail and wail. But this was not some professional thing that was going on. This is genuine heartfelt grief that she is experiencing. These are genuine tears, not just the professional death wail. She is alone. Peter and John had gone home. She's uninformed. Peter and John did not tell her what they found. She's heartbroken. The loss of her master whom she loved. And I'm sure she was reminding herself and remembering the first encounter that she had with Jesus. He had cast seven devils from her. How she had sinned much, how she had been forgiven much, how she had been loved much. And Mary was totally unprepared for what was about to happen next. And what does Mary see? The first thing that Mary sees are two angels at each end of where the body would have been verse 12, and she saw, the, uh-oh here, this is the investigative look now, two angels in, in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at one head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And it was actually a little bit more of a, of a challenge than it was more of a comforting kind of a statement. Now Mary doesn't seem startled at the presence of these uh, angelic beings sitting in the tomb. She answered, with a genuineness that reflects her continued confusion about the whole thing. She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now notice Mary doesn't refer to him as a body. She still refers to him out of her devotion, out of her love. He is my Lord. But before she has time to contemplate these divine beings, she senses a presence behind her and now Mary sees the gardener she sees the gardener having said this she turned around and saw there again Jesus standing but she did not know that it was Jesus the significance of what was taking place is still not registering in her heart all she's thinking about is someone has taken away my lord she cannot see beyond that So Jesus says to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried uh, carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. So even still, even after this encounter, after Jesus speaks to her, she still cannot comprehend what's going on, and she's still concerned about her master, and someone has taken away Um, his body from the tomb. But then something familiar happens. She hears her name from the lips of the one who loves her. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, I don't know how he said it, but I'm sure he said it in such a way that she knew who it was speaking to her. That one word which remade her whole world that transformed her life forever. That one word was her name. And friends, this is a reminder to us of the personal nature of a relationship with Jesus. Turn to chapter 10, and verses 3 and 4. I just want to remind you of this. John chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. Here's what we have recorded. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his, what? His voice. And so there's a sense that this is what's going on. Jesus is, is speaking, and, and the, the one who knows him, the one who is consumed, the one who out of love is, is weeping for the of of her master and the the, the removal of his body and what that means, she hears her name. And Jesus, of course, is tender. He's loving. He's caring. And friends, he is interested in us as people, as individuals, as his own family. And when Jesus spoke her name, what did Mary see? Mary saw Jesus. She saw him as he really is. Verse 16, she turned around and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Then in raptured happiness, she falls at his feet and wraps her arms around him, clinging to him tightly. And the image that came to my mind is is soldiers or marines coming back from their tour of duty and getting off the and meeting their families after they haven't seen them for a while, there's a sense in which they just grab one another and hold on to one another. They don't say too much. They just grab and hold. And that's kind of what's going on here. There's happiness. There's joy. There's tears. There's clinging. Now notice what Mary does next. Verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen, and the word here is Adon, that means it's not just I've seen generally. It's not just I've seen investigatively. I have now perceived, I now understand, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. So she goes back to the disciples and tells them that she has seen the Lord. And she tells them that he spoke to her and this is what he said. Well, began with general sight led to investigative sight which resulted in understanding and perceptive sight. She believes. She has seen the Lord. She has touched the Lord. She has talked to the Lord. He is alive. He is risen from the dead. But you see this progression to seeing, to more intense seeing, to seeing with understanding. And now we move to the disciples. He's Intimidated disciples. I use the word intimidated because of what they are doing in this passage. It's now evening. And it says in verse 18, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Listen, if your leader has been arrested and he's been beaten and he's been crucified and you're one of his followers, you're probably a little afraid. It's understandable. You're being careful. You're being cautious. So you're gathering in a room. It might be a secret gathering, and you're locking the doors because you don't want any Jews to find out where you are. That's kind of the context here. They're a little intimidated about what's going on. And what happens? Well, it's not. (laughs) Their intention was to lock the doors to keep the Jews out. God's intention was for them to lock the doors so that Jesus could come in. Just think about that. God's sovereignty in working through man and his intentions. So this becomes a mechanism for the disciples to see Jesus for who he really is and ultimately believe. So while John may have believed, while Mary may have testified her meeting with Jesus to the rest of the disciples, it's evening and they're still bantering around what has taken place that day. And they're locked in this room. The reality of the resurrection had still to emerge among that group of disciples with any degree of certainty. And so what did the disciples see? Well, we find out they saw Jesus appear in that room, in that locked room. Here is the master. All of a sudden, there he is, standing in their presence, having entered the locked room, and he is speaking to them with a greeting. And then they see his hands and his side. Notice verse 20, when he When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Here's the proof. Here's the evidence. You saw what happened to me on the cross? Here's what's happening. Uh, Here's the evidence of, of that. There must have been goosebumps all over the room as Jesus went through the motions of showing himself to them. There were goosebumps on their goosebumps. I mean, that's the intense nature of what's going on here this is a powerful powerful encounter and they result them saying this the text here says the disciples were glad when they saw the word there is oida the lord they saw with an understanding that was certain that the person standing in front of them is the lord this is the one who is risen from the grave And as a result of what they see, they are glad. They're overjoyed when they see the Lord. And I'm sure that in their hearts, they were remembering his words of promise to them. Go back to John chapter 14 and verse 18. John chapter 14 and verse 18. Just a few pages back, it says this. Speaking to his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And then you can jump ahead to John chapter 16. As things began for this this passion story, verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. That's what's happening here. Here they are gathered, and their Messiah, their Jesus, is now standing in their presence. All evidence, all proof for them to see the pain of suffering and sorrow is over. The joy and gladness of his resurrection is now being experienced. Friends, again, we see this progress of sight with them. And it results with this certain eyesight, this certain understanding, this certain comprehension, which leads us now to this fourth individual. Now, say the disciples. There were only ten disciples then that were gathered in that room. Of course, we know Judas is gone. He's already hung himself. He's already killed himself. And we find out Thomas wasn't there either. So here's what we're told, verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin was not with them when Jesus came. Now, a little bit of history about Thomas reveals that he was marked a couple of things. He was a loyal man. He was willing to go to Jerusalem and die, John eleven sixteen says. He was also willing to be honest about his lack of understanding. So he was humble. That's John chapter 14 and verse 5. That's where Thomas said to, to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? But here in this encounter, we find out that that Thomas is not willing to act unless he's absolutely sure about the facts and the details. That's not necessarily a bad quality. Now, we have to understand that different people struggle with trials and difficulties and hardships in different ways. You know, one of the questions I ask is, why are the disciples all gathered together except for Thomas? What's going on? We're not told, but we do know that when he comes, that he is not willing to believe right away. Verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen, I done, the Lord. All right, we've seen with this perception, we've seen this with this understanding, the Lord. Now, this word told is in the imperfect tense, which means this. They continually, they repeatedly told him, we've seen the Lord. In other words, they're saying, listen, John went there into the tomb, and you know what he saw? He saw the linen cloths, he saw the the, the turban that was lying there, just like the body disappeared and it dropped. And then Mary went to the tomb. When she was there, she saw apparently some angels, and then she saw who she thought was the gardener, but actually it was Jesus, and he spoke to her, and she grabbed him, and she clung to him, and Jesus spoke to her, and she goes running back to the disciples and tells us. And then Jesus came into our presence, and you weren't even here. He showed us his hands, and he showed us his side to prove to us that it was him. And they're just saying this over and over and over again. But Thomas is like, "Mm -mm. I'm not going to believe this. How does Thomas respond? First thing is this, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas wanted bodily proof, bodily evidence of Jesus' risen state. All their testimony was for him insufficient. He had to see for himself. But Thomas would have eight days to ponder all these things. Because notice the passage here says this. Eight days later, verse 26, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, same scenario, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. I'm sure that Thomas gulped quite a bit. And he said in his heart, I am in for some humiliation today, I'm sure. But that is not necessarily what we see. Notice what does happen, though. Just like before, Jesus comes in, he greets the disciples, but this time he confronts Thomas, and he said to Thomas, verse 27, put your fingers here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, there's no indication that Thomas did those things. He can only respond now by believing the evidence standing before him, and he offers this absolutely incredible confession. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Now, friends, this is is a climactic statement in the whole of John's gospel. Not only in chapter 20, because John is seeing and he's believing. What is he believing? That Jesus rose from the dead. Mary is believing. She sees her Lord. She grabs her Lord. She touches her Lord. She's believing that he has risen from the dead. The disciples believe because they've seen his, his presence with them, showing the, the, the scars in his body. And they believe. But when we come to Thomas, it's not just that he believes that Jesus is the Lord or that he's risen from the dead. He believes that he is God. John begins his gospel with the words. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And we know that word came to this earth, took on the form of a servant. And ultimately, John now brings his gospel to this climax with Thomas's confession, my Lord and my God. John's gospel is first and foremost an evangelistic gospel, seeking to present Jesus to the people uh, uh, so that they will believe and thus be converted followers of Christ. But it is also a gospel for our edification, for we who are his followers can, can be built up in the faith, knowing that we're not just believing some pie-in-the-sky thing, and Jesus is not just some crutch we're holding on to. There is solid, foundational, layered evidence that He really is who He says He is. And our belief might have come in stages. And our ability to comprehend and see may, may take place over time, but that is what is taking place. As people are reading this book, John is saying, listen, you're beginning to see... To understand, but come to the place where you see that Jesus Christ is not only the Lord, he is also God. Now what about us? The evidence is overwhelming. It is just as substantive. It is just as clear. And we may not be eyewitnesses. We may not have had the privilege of seeing, touching, or hearing the risen Jesus, but we too can believe with confidence and certainty. That's why Jesus says next in this passage, this key verse, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And it's a clarion call to all who are reading John's gospel that they can believe the evidence that leads to eternal and abundant life. John is speaking About us, Jesus is speaking about us. Jesus is speaking about you. And he's promising blessing, spiritual blessing to any and all who believe without physically seeing Jesus and the evidence firsthand. Is there anyone here that's seen the nails in his hands and the piercing in his sight? Anyone here? I'd like to talk to you if you have. All of our faith is built on eyewitness accounts. Now, friends, we can say, I I have to see it for myself. And you might wander off into mysticism. And John is saying, you don't need to physically touch Jesus. Jesus himself is saying, listen, you don't have to physically see me. You don't have to physically touch me. You can believe with the testimony of others. And friends, that's the way it's been throughout the church age. That's why John continues to say, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So for 20 chapters, John has been painting this picture of divine evidence for our benefit. Will you and I believe it? The question is, what will we do with it? Will we just kind of see it? That was a nice sermon, Pastor Rod. See you next week. Will it cause you to open up the Word of God and to dig more? Will it take you to a place of full, convincing belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Not just some kind of truth that you're willing to sign on a dotted line, but it truly really is. It consumes you. He is your Lord and Savior. Big difference. Evidence isn't there just to kind of have an academic response. It is there to paint a picture that Jesus truly is who he claims to be. Now, we have seen the four witnesses. But as we finish up today, it would be beneficial to us also to to look at the wonderful promises uttered by Jesus in this context. They further reinforce God's goodness and sovereignty through all he is doing. So five resurrection promises. I promise I will be brief as we go through this, but it's worth us noting these. First of all, Jesus says, I am going to my father as he is with um, Mary. She's clinging to him. Look at verse 17. He says, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and to your God. Jesus' work was not yet done. His work on the cross was done. His work of resurrection was done, but he still had to ascend. And Jesus is still at work, even today, accomplishing this divine plan for us. So it's a promise to us that Jesus continues to do, even today, Uh, Even those things that we think are enough, he continues to work on our behalf, and he promises that he is going to his Father, and that Father is our Father, and he's going to God, and that God is our God. Friend, that's a promise to us. Jesus right now is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is there interceding for us. He is there as our representative. The second promise is this. This is the the commission. Verse 21, he says... I am sending you. Verse 21, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me. Even so I am sending you. Just like I have come to this world to minister, to present the gospel, to be that sacrifice, I am sending you now to take that same message of the gospel of what I have done for mankind. I'm sending you on a mission. This is John's great commission. And friends, he's left us with a great commission and he has also left us not alone but with help and that is the third promise it's the thir- it's the promise of empowerment i am empowering you look at verse 22 and when he had said this he breathed on them and said to them receive the holy spirit if you forgive the sins of any they are forgiven them if you would Uh, withhold forgiveness from any it is withheld so what's going on here is this we're not alone because we have the empowerment of the holy spirit residing in us and with the holy spirit he is granting those disciples those apostles authority to carry out the work of the church as his representatives empowered by the holy spirit and friends that goes on and we are the recipients of that today All of us who have embraced Christ as our Lord and Savior are now uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit for ministry. And that is what Jesus commissioned to them. It's what he empowered them with. It's the authority that he gave them. There is also the promise of what I'm calling conviction, conviction. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. We we have substantive, clear evidence that is foundational and is a rock for our faith. And that foundational rock is the, the basis upon which we live our lives for his glory. And it was true for them. This is what they need to know. This is what they need to be convinced of. And it's a final evidence and proof that Jesus is who he says he is. And friends, you don't have worry about whether or not what God has revealed in his word is true. It is true. And you can believe that with conviction. And then the final thing is this. It's blessing. Now I know it's real popular in our culture to talk about God blessing us, right? But notice what kind of blessing we're talking about here. Verse 29, Then Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed this is like a beatitude we are blessed that doesn't mean happy it means we are now accepted by god the father is that a good thing it means that we are reconciled to the father through the death of the son it means that god, god's wrath has been absor- absorbed and diverted and placed on jesus at the cross rather than on us it means that we have found our satisfaction in Him, the bread of life. Now friends, these are blessings. These are real blessings. Right? Money in your bank is not the blessing that God is talking about. It's eternal blessings that come as a result of what God has done through His Son for those who are His. Peter says it best. And I want to encourage you to mark this down. 1 Peter chapter. One. And remember, Peter is in that room. He's listening. He saw, he's one that was all part of the activities of that resurrection day. And as he's speaking and writing this letter, here's what he says: Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And the salvation he's talking about here as that ultimate salvation where we will stand in the presence of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Friends, we have this Promise. And just like the, the recipients of Peter's letter, we do not see him except that we see him through the lens of God's word that reveals to us who he is. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is this one that we can call our Lord and Savior. We may not see him physically, but we believe in him and we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, being confident and certain that our salvation will take place and will bring us to the place where you're standing in heaven with him. Now, friends, I don't know where you are in this process of sight. It may be general. It may be investigative. You may be at a place where you are perceiving and convinced that what God's word says is true, but I am pleading with you, don't just kind of say, "Well, that was nice, nice sermon, Pastor." Roy. That's a nice passage. I like talking about the resurrection. If that is how you respond to this, I just want to plead with you: notice the evidence, examine the evidence, believe the evidence, and believe in such a way that that belief is not just that He rose again, but because He rose again, that tells us that He is the Messiah. Son of God. Lord help us today to comprehend your majesty your power and your glory through the pages of John's gospel. This is a gift to us and John as he wrote this gospel Lord writes in such a way that that we can just have mounting evidence so Lord may we May we come faced with you through the the, the experiences of others who are eyewitnesses, who have seen the evidence of your resurrection, who have actually touched you, Lord, who have have spent time talking with you and have listened to you, and even those who have been skeptical but have come to faith in you. Lord, would you help us to grasp and, and, and wrestle with that, Lord, and either be built up in our own faith because of that, Lord, or come to faith because of the evidence that is so overwhelming. And Lord, I pray for that person right now who who is being stirred by your Spirit, who's wrestling with letting go of living life on their own and putting themselves fully and completely in your care. Lord, I ask for your Holy Spirit to do a work in that heart, Lord, that they may be saved, that they would know that you are their Lord and Savior. They would cry out to you, Lord, plead with you to cleanse them from their sin, to make them whole, and Lord, that they would find total and complete satisfaction in you. We ask in your precious name, amen.